Well, my message today has to do with the proclamation of the gospel, but the actual title is something like Proclamation, Not Propaganda. Propagation, Not Propaganda. So I've been thinking on this subject of propaganda quite a bit and uh, reading on it. And yesterday at uh, lunch, I, I uh, sat down to a bowl of chili that my wife made, and uh, I just realized that uh, I was looking at a mild form of, of propaganda as I was uh, putting the cheese on the chili. Uh, here's uh, some cheddar cheese with the uh, title on the top, Happy Farms. Happy Farms. Now, children, do you think this cheese came from Happy Farms? Well, I don't know what kind of a farm. It might have been a corporate farm. And a lot of people that work on those aren't happy. <laughs> but, you know, it just wouldn't have done quite as well, would it, to put corporate farms at the top. But then I had another kind of cheese. This kind is fit and active. So, again, children, why did they put fit and active at the top of that? Does that mean if I eat this cheese, I'll be fit and active? Yeah. <laughs> Not if I eat too much of it, I won't. Um, see, they're trying to, they're using a title there, a, a heading on this, this cheese to make you feel good about it, you know. Like this is, this is the kind of cheese to buy. So that's just a very mild form of what we call propaganda. But uh, what I want to share today has to do with much more uh, important areas of propaganda and the type that we normally think about, which is that type of, of information uh, that is given to us that is not truthful, that steers us away from what reality really is. But I want to begin by just reading a couple of verses here concerning the proclamation of the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. First Corinthians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. And this is Paul speaking. He said, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. There's the word proclaiming. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And then if you turn to Second Corinthians, chapter 4, 
Again, Paul speaking. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So we are wanting to look at this area of proclaiming the gospel, not using propaganda. And I just kind of want to give you a feel for this area of propaganda to begin with. I would say that we live in an age of almost all-pervasive propaganda. By propaganda, I mean the deliberate use of manipulated or misleading information to change the way people understand an issue or a situation. It is using persuasive methods that short-circuit critical thought processes and seek to manipulate the minds of people to gain a desired end. Satan is the master propagandist. He's underhanded, deceptive, shrewd, and cunning. The word the Bible uses is crafty. So, if you look back to the initial involvement of Satan with mankind, you'll see the beginnings of propaganda. And really, this uh, the de- desire to manipulate has been with us since the time of the fall, since the time that uh, mankind was deceived by Satan. But the ability to manipulate, to use propaganda, has increased greatly with the age of mass communication. Modern methods of transmitting propaganda include news reports, government reports, theater, books, leaflets, movies, radio, television, posters, and, of course, the Internet. We are bombarded with propaganda to buy certain products, support certain causes, vote for political candidates, and, unfortunately, to embrace religious systems. And I, that's the part that we want to really deal with today. It's sad but true that even professing Christians can fall into the use of propaganda as they seek to propagate the gospel. In fact, I found this out. If you look up, just type in Christianity and propaganda, most of what you'll see are sites that say that Christianity is propaganda. And unfortunately, there's some truth to what's being presented on those sites. Now, one of the, I will say this, one of the main ways of trying to or one of the methods of using propaganda is to say that the other person is deceitful. I'm telling you the truth, the other person is deceitful. But the fact is that 
in the history of Christianity, propaganda has been used quite a bit. In fact, the term itself originated in Europe in 1622, <clears throat> shortly after the start of the Thirty Years' War that pitted Catholics and against Protestants. The Catholic Pope Gregory XV founded the, this is the name of it, the Sacred Congregation for the Propagation of the Faith. That was in charge of spreading Catholicism. Now, the Latin for that, in, in a short form, is propaganda fide, propagating the faith, propaganda fide. So, I want us to see that propaganda can hurt Christianity in two ways. First, when it's used against Christians, and second, when it's used by Christians. And I think it's quite possible that the second is more damaging than the first when it's used by Christians. The basic thing I'd like to get across this morning as we, is this. As we seek to present God's truth through our lips and our lives, we must be careful not to use methods that undermine or go against our message, which is Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, we must not use propaganda. Our message and our manner is to be clear and sincere, not crafty or clever. We are to speak the truth in love, not bear false witness. We are to use plain speech, not propaganda. Now, what uh, got me thinking along these lines is I read some quotes. I've, in the past, I've read some from a book called Propaganda by a, a uh, man named Jacques Ellou, who was a Christian sociologist. This book was written, uh, well, published in 1965, but it's very relevant for us today. And here I just want to quote a little from him because this will show you partly why I got to thinking about this. He says that, uh, quote, because of its psychological effect, propaganda makes the propagation of Christianity increasingly difficult. It seems that people manipulated by propaganda become increasingly impervious to spiritual realities. Now, what he, what he brings out in the book, as I said earlier, that propaganda is all around us all the time. We're used to having propaganda pumped into our minds. And what he's saying here is that it, this becomes such a way of receiving information that when we're not propagandized, we don't receive the information. We're so used to hear, having things put upon us in this way. In other words, he's saying that propaganda becomes so characteristic of the information we receive that it makes it very difficult for people to receive information that is not presented as propaganda. Now, you just have to think about that a little bit. He goes on to say, well, actually, let me just say this. The temptation then becomes, because propaganda is so all-pervasive that the temptation becomes for the Christian to use it because this is the way people receive information now. We're tempted to use some methods of propaganda in order to achieve the commendable goal of 
furthering the gospel. But Elu says this is not possible. He says propaganda is a total system that one must accept or reject in its entirety. You can't just pick and choose, well, I'll try this part of propaganda, but I won't use this. He says it doesn't work that way. If the church accepts propaganda, two important consequences follow. That is the use of propaganda. Two important consequences follow. First of all, Christianity disseminated by such means is not Christianity. In fact, what happens as soon as the church avails itself of propaganda is a reduction of Christianity to the level of all other ideologies and secular religions. You've, you've left the realm of true Christianity and you've come down to the realm of worldly wisdom and man's ways of doing things. So, he said, you've lowered it to the level of all other ideologies and secular religions. The other consequence affects the church itself. When it, when it uses propaganda, we're talking about when the church, Christianity, uses propaganda, it says when it uses propaganda, the church succeeds. It reaches the masses, influences collective opinions, and even makes many people accept what seems to be Christianity. But in doing that, the church becomes a false church. It submits to the laws of efficiency in order to become a power in the world, and in fact, it succeeds. It does become such a power. At that moment, it has chosen power above truth. I think these are amazing things he's saying here. He goes on to say that propaganda is one of the most powerful factors in de-Christianization of the world, in the de-Christianization of the world. I think he would say, at least this is what I came away from this, the church that uses propaganda may gain the world, but it will lose its soul. Now, if what he's saying is true, and I think it is, then we must be aware of what propaganda is all about so that we're not duped by it ourselves and so that we do not use it in order to seek to advance the kingdom of God. So here's what I want to try to do this morning. I want to give some examples of what we're talking about. Give some concrete examples of what methods, techniques of propaganda let me just say again, propaganda attempts to persuade through the calculated avoidance of a fair presentation of the factors necessary for sound decision-making. They seek to avoid a fair presentation in order for you to make a sound decision about something. Propaganda must appear to be truthful, but in reality deals with half-truths, incomplete information, or misinformation. Often emotional appeals Emotional appeals are maximized and logical, clear thinking is minimized. We're talking about what, what propaganda is all about. So, one thing you have in almost all propaganda is some form of information management. Information management. Information must be spun in order to bring about the desired effect. Some types of this spinning include amplification, that is, making small things seem large. Now, some of these things you just have to think about in terms of how this comes at you in various ways and how we should not allow this to be used in our presentation of the gospel. 
making small things seem to be larger. Downplaying is another spinning. That, that has to do with making big things seem small. And then, of course, distortion, which is making half-truths seem true, and truth, truth seem wrong. Another thing that uh, is involved in propaganda is oversimplification, giving superficial answers to complex questions, often done through slogans and sound bites and catchphrases. As we go along here, I'll... I'll give some examples of what we're talking about, but some of these I know you can fill in yourself. <clears throat> Repetition is another thing that's important in many forms of propaganda, saying something over and over until it's ingrained in the mind. In fact, Hitler, who was very good at this thing of propaganda, said this, it is possible by means of shrewd and unremitting propaganda, and that's the part I want to emphasize here, unremitting. Just keep saying the same thing. It's possible by means of shrewd and unremitting propaganda to make, to make people believe that heaven is hell and hell heaven. So repetition. Another thing that you'll see if you look up sites that tell you different techniques of propaganda, there's one called glittering generalities. Glittering generalities. By that, we're talking about words that give a sense of substance and trigger powerful emotions that lack real substance and are not backed up by real evidence or facts. Just using an emotional word to get your point across, to try to sway a person one way or the other. Vague words that sound good but in practice say uh, practically nothing. Let's say where you want somebody to vote for a particular politician. Well, this... So-and-so is a real American. What does that mean? Oh, I don't know, but it must be good. Unless you live in Pakistan. Then, you know, to come across and say so-and-so is a real American probably wouldn't get you many votes. You have to be aware of your target audience on something like that. But the point is, is that you try to get approval or acceptance of something without examining the evidence. You just get this word, these, use these powerful words out there. I was listening to a, a, uh, a DVD, actually, about the uh, use of propaganda. And back in the, I can't remember if it was the 20s or 30s, when cigarettes were mainly smoked by men. So they go to a a propaganda expert, public relations guy, and say, how can we get women started smoking? Well, he said, I'm going to have to use some of these words. He didn't say this, but this is what he was doing. We've got to use some powerful emotional words here to get this across. So there was some big parade, I, I don't remember what it was, in, in New York City, which everybody... Uh, would come to there and watch. So he said, what we're going to do is have some famous women personalities in this parade, and we're going to have them smoke cigarettes. And we're going to have a lot of pictures taken and have them printed in the paper, and the caption is going to say, Torches of Freedom. The cigarette is a torch of freedom. 
Well, I, I, yeah, I want to be free. Sounds good. So, and they worked. There was a, a tremendous switch over then. Well, not a switch over, but an increase of women starting to smoke cigarettes after this, this propaganda campaign. So we're talking about glittering, ge glittering generalities. Selective omission. Telling only the truth that supports your position. Propaganda sometimes involves telling outright lies, but more often it deals with partial truths. When selective omission is used, you simply tell the truth, but deliberately omit things that would not be desirable for your position. You can say, every, everything you say, you see, can be true, and it can still be propaganda. Let me give you an example. An unethical used car salesman could completely be truthful about everything he tells you about the car that he's trying to sell you, yet he may actually misrepresent that car by leaving out many problems that the car has. He could tell you everything, everything that he said could be true, and yet he still misrepresented the product because there's some major problems that he's not telling you about. Through selective selection of information, a person can be dishonest while everything he says is true. As one expert on propaganda says, and this, he was promoting propaganda. This was actually the um, British Deputy Director of Psychological Warfare during World War II. And he says this, in propaganda, truth pays. It is a complete delusion to think of the brilliant propagandist as being a professional liar. The brilliant propagandist is a man who tells the truth or, or, that, selects, or that selection of the truth, which is requisite for his purposes, and tells it in such a way that the recipient does not think he's receiving propaganda. But the key phrase there is, yeah, you tell the truth. That selection of truth, which is requisite for your purposes. The place that you often see this type of propaganda is dealing with historical information. By picking only favorable parts of a person's life, you can give a very distorted view of things, even though what you say may be entirely true. Here's an example I know of. If I were to write a biography of Martin Luther, presenting only the commendable things he did and leaving out his very bad and evil statements against the Jews, I would be guilty of selective omission. And unfortunately, Christians sometimes want to paint their forebearers, those they com consider to be heroes without blemishes. It's good to remember that the Bible does not do that. Actually, it's a form of bearing false witness, which is condemned by the Bible. And because it's a distortion of the truth, it does harm to the cause of Christ. Let me give you an example of how that can happen. For instance, when a college 
a Christian college student starts hearing some of the things that Christian propagandists selectively omitted from their accounts of Christianity, it can damage the faith of that young believer. I mean, you've been told, we'll just use Martin Luther as an example, told all these good things about Martin Luther. You go off to college and find out, read some of these things he said against the Jews, and, and you think, what in the world? This doesn't sound like the same man I've heard about. Well, that's because you didn't hear the whole truth about it. Now, we have to, again, remember that this is not the way the, the Bible deals with the people uh, that it presents. The fact is that some very evil things have been done in the name of Christ, and to ignore those things is to be untruthful. As one writer said, the Christian public's ignorance of unflattering historical particulars is largely due to the propagandist approach to church history by authors with an agenda, not concerned one concerned more with the promotion of a certain denomination or movement or ministry than with providing the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So be careful of this thing of selective omission. Another thing that you'll see if you look up sites that tell you about propaganda techniques is the use of a straw man. The use of a straw man. The propagandist often erects a straw man by misrepresentation of the opponent's position and then claims victory by demolishing the straw man. The idea of a straw man is that they, are, they supposedly represent the opponent's position, but because they are just straw men, not real, they're easy to defeat. It's not the real position of the opponent. You erect a straw man, say, this is the position of these people, destroy it, and you say, all right, see, that shows they're wrong. I'm right. Give the impression that you've been victorious over your opponent when, in fact, all you've done is torn down a misrepresentation of your opponent's position. I'll give you an example. Let's say I'm a young earth creationist. I'm against evolution, but I'm also against the old earth position held by some Christians. If I give the impression that the old earth position is really just an accommodation to evolution and therefore wrong, I've erected a straw man that really does not represent the old earth creation position. As Christians, we must always fairly represent the views of those we disagree with. If we don't, it'll come back to haunt us. We have to fairly represent the views of those we disagree with. We should not pick the worst spokes spokesman with the worst arguments as an example of a position we're against. If we are not careful in this area of attacking a straw man, we will be guilty of what the Bible calls slander. Satan is a slanderer. And then I, I also, we've brought this, I've mentioned this in several ways already, but just this thing of emphasizing emotions. This is a very big part of propaganda. Often propaganda techniques aim to sway the sentiments and feelings using highly charged images, slogans, and situations to produce an, an emotion 
rather than a rational and emotional rather than a rational response. Hitler was a master of this a aspect of propaganda. Uh, let me give you a few quotes here. He said that propaganda is aiming always and primarily at emotions and very little at man's alleged reason. Now here's a few quotes from his book, Mein Kampf. It means my struggle. He wrote it while he was in prison. He believed that the speeches that would be most effective would be those that were given in the afternoon or evenings when people are tired and not thinking as clearly. He says this, quote, Even the hour of the day in which an address is delivered has a decided influence on the effect of the address. Fine oratory by a dominant apostolic character will be more successful in the evening in inducing men whose powers of resistance are by that late hour sensibly weakened in the natural course than, man, than men who are in full possession of their energy of mind and volition. He says, hit them when they're not thinking as clear. He goes on to say, the same purpose is served by the artificially produced mysterious dim lights in the Roman Catholic churches, the lighted candles, the incense, the censers. See what he's talking about? He's talking about trying to hit a person on the emotional level, not in, not in terms of rational thought. Use the mysterious lighting of the candles and the incense and things. I'm telling you, you got to apply this in terms of what, what's sometimes done in evangelism even. So even the lighting can have an effect on the emotions and the effectiveness of propaganda. The huge mass rallies that the Nazis organized were primarily aimed at stirring the emotions, not encouraging critical thinking. In Mein Kampf, he spoke of, quote, the gigantic mass demonstrations, those parades of hundreds of thousands of men which burned into this small, wretched individual the proud conviction that, petty worm that he is, he is nevertheless part of a great dragon. See, they, he wrote this before any of this was going on. He wrote this while he was still in prison. But he said, I know what I'm going to do. I know how to sway people. I know how to use propaganda. He says that the individual at these masses, at these mass rallies, quote, submits himself to the magic influence of what is called mass suggestion. A man who enters such a meeting in doubt and hesita hesitation leaves it inwardly fortified. He has become a member of the community, that is, the Nazi party. That's what he's talking about there. You can come in doubting, but you'll leave a member just because of the influence of the mass meeting, the emotional power that's there. We have to be careful about these things. So what does this say to us as Christians? We should not try to play on the emotions of those we speak to. And the emphasis there is play on the emotions. Emotions are, are important, but we do not aim primarily at emotions in our proclamation of the gospel. For us, for us as Christians, truth understood by the mind is what... It, is, is what should stir 
the emotions. Truth understood by the mind should stir the emotions. We don't aim primarily at the emotions. If we start doing that, we're, we're using propaganda. We should never deliberately try to bring forth an emotional response that bypasses clear, the clear understanding of truth. Some examples of what we're talking about are using tear-jerking stories, emotional music, putting an undue emphasis on Christ's physical sufferings. That can be just an emotional thing that you're trying to draw people out with. Or even the physical sufferings of the sinner in hell. All these things can be used to produce a profound emotional effect upon people, but this can be merely psychological and not a spiritual work of, the, of God's spirit upon the whole man. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the emotions and the will should always be influenced through the mind. Truth is intended to come to the mind. The natural course is for the emotions and will to be affected by the truth after it has entered and gripped the mind. God wants clear-minded, glad-hearted, willing commitment of our whole self to himself, which comes through belief in the truth. I want to repeat, repeat that. God wants clear-minded, glad-hearted, willing commitment of our whole self to himself, which comes through belief in the truth. So what I'm saying here is we want... As Christians, we want spiritual, true spiritual conversions, not psychological manipulation. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to get a true spiritual conversion if you use propaganda. Yeah. Well, there are many other propaganda techniques, but I want to spend the last part of our time here on the Word of God and how it presents how we should present his word. So a few words about God's word and about how we should present his word. First of all, and this should be right at the top, I think, honestly. Honestly. Proverbs 14.25 says, A truthful witness saves lies. Not a propagandist. A truthful witness saves lies. But he who utters lies is treacherous. Mm -hmm. The Bible says that we should, that our yes should be yes and our no should be no. Honesty, straightforward honesty. Let's turn to Second uh, Corinthians chapter two, verse seventeen. Second Corinthians two seventeen. For we are not like many. This does go on, Paul says. This goes on under the name of religion. This does go on under the name of Christianity, but it's not Christianity. We are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Honesty, he says, honesty, honesty. Humility. 
we present the, the Word of God humbly. Let's turn to James chapter 3, beginning with verse 17. The actual context up above is the use of the tongue. He spends a lot of time on that. But he says this, verse 17 of chapter 3. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Many things mentioned here, but the one I'm zeroing in on here is just the humility, the gentleness, the reasonableness, full of mercy, without hypocrisy, sown in peace. So, honestly, we present God's word. Humbly, we present God's word. Clearly, clearly, we should always strive for clarity in what we're saying when we're talking to somebody about the gospel. That's why sometimes if you're talking to a college student, you don't want to use a bunch of King James English. You want to get it as clear as you can. Not that the King James Bible is a bad version or anything, but some of the phrases are not understandable to the current audience. So clarity, clarity, you want clarity. Um, well, let me just read a verse here. This is out of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Actually, this section is dealing with the area of speaking in tongues, but I think it applies to what we're talking about here. Paul says in verse 8, For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear... How will it be known what is spoken? For you will be sp speaking into the air. But he's saying you, you want clear, clarity in what you say so people understand what's being presented. <clears throat> and then, honestly, humbly, clearly, expectantly and boldly. I put those two together because they come in this same verse. Second Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 12. Having therefore such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. So, we're talking about humility and boldness. Is it possible they go together? Yes, it is. It's possible through the Spirit of God. Having therefore such a hope, such an expectation, that God has made us ministers of the new covenant. The, the proclamation of the gospel, you see, is not based on our ability. It's based upon the truth of God supernaturally by, communicated by the Spirit of God. And Paul says he was made an able minister of the new covenant, new covenant. So we can have an, a hope, an expectation, a boldness in our and should have in our presentation of the truth and then prayerfully Ephesians 6 19 
I'll just read it to you. And pray on my behalf, Paul says. Now, you'd think with all these other things, he's just got it all together. No, he says, no, pray for me. Pray for me. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me. Isn't that something? Utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. If we leave that aspect out, we're likely to be quite unfruitful, prayerfully presenting the gospel. So, I guess, in closing, I would say that the proclamation has to be Christ-centered and Spirit-empowered. Christ-centered and Spirit-empowered. That's really where we began. That's what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians. Let me just read it to you again here. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of spirit, of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. Christ-centered, spirit-empowered is what the proclamation of the gospel is all about. That's what makes the difference between something that's just psychological and something that's truly spiritual. The difference between a psychological conversion and a spiritual, true spiritual conversion has to do with it being Christ-centered and spirit-empowered. So we renounce the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. You don't do that with propaganda. You do that with God's truth presented in the power of his Holy Spirit. So beware of propaganda being used on you or being used by you. Well, may God help us in this.